Tis the season for love and enchantments and princesses and handsome princes and such like. But lately, former fans of these ideas just aren't feeling it, especially from the Disney side of our magical fandoms. When the big mouse keeps getting into big brand trouble, how's a Christian fan to respond? Josh Shepard brings a balanced biblical perspective into the studio. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the magical kingdom podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stever Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent, and I just got back from a sold-out showing of Pixar's Turning Red in theaters. I could barely even get in. I had to fight all these other fans in red panda suits. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am ready to go to infinity and beyond for episode 199 How Should Christians Fight to Love a Declining Disney? Yeah, I was being sarcastic there earlier. They weren't actually wearing panda suits. Uh, They were dressed up like political activists. Uh, That's a kid on top of a kid. And uh, it was all adults there at the showing. But in fact, I didn't actually go to a showing at all. Apparently, Pixar has been trying to put uh, some of their direct-to-streaming movies in theaters to make up for lost time. It's apparently not working out very well. I wish them the best. I think it was a bad decision to decide to go all in on the whole streaming ordeal. Guys, lockdowns are over, but Disney's got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of rep that's been lost with fans uh, because of a lot of bad decisions that we've, uh, they've been making. In fact, just this past week, we've seen uh, some consequences of their bad decisions that we'll talk about uh, once Josh enters the studio shortly. I think if you wanted to summarize what's going wrong with Disney, they are breaking one of the original commandments of screenwriting, which is, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. (laughs) So this is a timeless screenwriting technique that uh, everyone has obeyed, at least everyone that wanted to be a successful screenwriter, because most fans do not want a sermon in their story. Even if they agree with it, it just doesn't make for good storytelling. And a lot of what Disney has been uh, doing in their stories is trying to push a sermon. People just naturally revolt against that. We don't go to a movie to be hectored or to be lectured or to be guilt or shamed. We go to a story to escape or to be entertained or to just enjoy something funny. It's sad to see this with Disney. And and that's a, a lot of what we'll talk about today is that we are not an all or nothing fan of or anti-fan or whatever you want to call it. We are not all or nothing consumers of Disney here. We like some things and don't like some things, but we're not going to throw everything out. Exactly. Uh, in fact, we don't have to do that thing where we say that all the secular stories are bad, so therefore you need to get this lame Christian alternative. Uh, in fact, at Lorehaven, we seek out uh, great stories that are just well made with excellence and that happen to be made by Christian authors. And every Friday we review them, like our last review for The Fox and the Dragon as this episode releases. That was our most recent review. And then this coming Friday, we have another review of a fantasy novel called The Tomb of the Sea Witch. So, That's coming up and then more reviews every Friday. You can subscribe free and get those along with any of our new articles and podcast episodes weekly. That's at lorehaven.com. We'll also email you the secret access code to join the Lorehaven Guild where you can partake in monthly book quests, which reminds me of our upcoming sponsor as well. Enclave Publishing, the top sponsor today with their new fantasy novel, Mortal Queens by Victoria McCombs. They vanish without a trace, disappear into the night. Each year on the center island, one girl is chosen to be the next mortal queen of the idolized fae. 
The mortals praise these lucky girls, but their daughters are never seen again. The Fey Realm is eternal night, where disputes are settled by chess matches, power is acquired through the most devious kinds of trickery, and seven elusive kings roam. The Fey hide their faces behind masks and guard their glass hearts to keep them from shattering. But beyond the veil of this luxurious paradise, a dark secret simmers, for their queens have disappeared. When aspiring artist Althea is selected, she is desperate to avoid the same mysterious fate. With no one to trust, she conceals messages in paintings and receives anonymous replies from a stranger who slowly reveals the tale of a girl who outwitted the Fey. Only if she is clever enough will Althea survive the fate of the mortal queens, as long as the king who cannot love does not claim her first. Mortal Queens is book one of the Fey Dynasty series by Victoria McCombs, and it just released this month, and it's available wherever books are sold. You can get it in hardcover, digital, or audiobook. We got all the links in our show notes for episode 199 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast. Zach, it sounds like uh, all is not well in uh, that particular Magic Kingdom. And although there's a lot of stuff that isn't well at Disney, uh, let's snack on some concessions before our guest arrives. Our title of this episode actually emphasizes a incidental theme that we are doing on the podcast this month. Our title emphasizes fighting to love things and not just rant about them or reject them. And I realize that we're speaking into a culture that uh, is increasingly shaped by a cottage industry of online pundits and uh, social media profiles, YouTube channels, et cetera, uh, that put up these uh, kind of intentional outrage bait headlines like failure or loser or morons, you know, and, and they get kind of mean about it. And they kind of do this uh, bullying taunting of companies like Disney and no, I'm not saying won't someone stick up for the poor, defenseless, multi-billion dollar corporation. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I just I, I want to recognize that Christians are, are are called to reward what is good and punish evil. Uh, don't get those out of proportion. Yes, Disney's been making absolutely terrible decisions just right up until last week uh, where they got hit with the Gina Carano lawsuit. And frankly, I read the entire lawsuit. She makes, seems to make a pretty solid case there. And um, unless Disney has something more persuasive to say, you know, Christians are supposed to listen to both sides in a case like that. It seems like she has the edge. Uh, maybe they'll settle out of court. And I don't know if that means a lot of Cara Dune back in the Mandalorian verse, but you know, Disney is all about dreams. So that is my dream. That is my wish. I hope that they would make come true. So I'm going to wish upon a star, uh, but some criticisms of Disney though, and we'll get into this are, are just invalid or they're badly out of proportion. Uh, we can kind of uh, act like they were always better or almost uh, Christian in the past. And now they're just evil. Like, yeah, guys, like the corruption was kind of there all along. Uh, lately, it's just uh, somewhat metastasized. Discernment, as Zach said earlier, means that we critique the bad. That is true, uh, but also praise the good. We hope to do those in this episode in biblical proportion. Yeah, well, I think it's fine to take a break from certain brands and just try out some new things. I don't think we have to have an all or nothing mindset. Like I said, we don't have to throw out a brand and say, there's nothing good that can come of this uh, ever again, or and everything I ever enjoyed was horrible and I was so wrong. And now I've seen the light. You know, I think that's the knee jerk reaction to so much uh, in so much online culture. Now it's just to become completely tribal and just everything is black and white. And I, I don't think it really works that way because Disney is a really big company with a long history that employs a ton of creators. And so one group of creators might be captured by activist ideology, but another might not. And, you know, maybe still some of your favorite stories get infused with a little bit of this stuff, but it might be against the creator's wishes. It might be 
a, you know, a studio executive or something like that. And that's just out of that creator's control uh, for the most part, unless they just want to quit and be fired over it or something. So I, I don't think it's quite as simple as we'd like to make it that, that Disney is one thing. It, it's a lot of things. And maybe they're turning towards good things, maybe not. I, I think time will tell. I think they are finding out the consequences of their own actions, and hopefully they will learn from those consequences. But I think we don't have to be embarrassed that we've enjoyed a recent or a classic Disney movie. I, I think that's kind of where things get a little bit unhealthy, uh, is where we start to shun each other or we uh, we feel like we are betraying the cause of whatever this boycott is that we're doing now. Now, I will say that the point of a boycott is to change the behavior of a brand. So if the boycott doesn't quite change the behavior, then okay. But once it does, then you should reward them. Like you said, Stephen, we want to reward the good. I think where it gets a little murky is when things haven't really changed. And so, you know, that's a big thing. People are debating with Bud Light right now because some you know, conservative leaders say, oh, you should give them another chance. And some say, no, the boycott must continue. And it just has to go back to what is the point of it? And, and why are you even doing it? And why are you drinking beer guys? Come on. Like the, yeah, like, stop drinking even, beer. It's, it's not even a Christian thing to do. <laughs> and, and even if you would, uh, don't drink a pagan, uh, weak, uh, listless vessel, uh, like, like, like Bud Light. I also want to acknowledge that uh, we have a lot of material about uh, popular culture at Lorehaven. Uh, previous episodes of this podcast, every year we kind of try to do a recap of the best and worst of the previous year. We have a whole slew of links in the show notes, uh, both from Lorehaven as well as from the Disney News last week, so you can see what we are seeing. But I, I wish to say before Josh enters that I think a great example to follow here in terms of engaging with uh, Disney or any large uh, popular culture company like that is Gina Carano. Uh, if you see her social media interactions and her interviews afterwards, like she is very disappointed uh, and I'm sure angry uh, at, at the uh, punishment that they inflicted on her uh, for saying like, you know, maybe some very, you know, not great, not very PR friendly opinions but she obviously crossed whatever progressivist ideology they were enforcing, whether it was on paper uh, or just uh, expecting, you know, sort of a verbal agreement. You know, she crossed that. She behaved uh, not entirely culturally leftist. And so she attracted a lot of bullying and then eventually got fired for it. And now she's suing them. And I think that she should. But even in the lawsuit, you can see uh, not only evidence of what she was actually doing on social media, trying to show love and compassion even to those who were bullying her. Uh, but she did draw some boundaries when they were trying uh, to submit her to some kind of corporate uh, re-education. She did draw her boundaries there, and I think rightfully so. But I think most importantly is she shows grace and compassion to her co-stars. She actually says, or, or the attorney says in the uh, document, and she also released a statement about that. Uh, she says that she has had uh, nothing but positive interactions with her former co-stars on The Mandalorian, which I, I suppose would go right up to the top, you know, the guy whose face you see occasionally. and who does the voice in the Mandalorian, Pedro Pascal. Uh, she, she credited, uh, oh, what's the name of the, uh, the, the chap who just died. He played, uh, Apollo Creed, Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. Yeah. Who directed a couple of Mandalorian episodes and, uh, was just extremely kind to her rest in peace. Yeah. Just a, a very solid mentor figure, obviously for her. And then several of the other actors, one of whom defended her publicly. And so it's wonderful to see these examples of the good, even amidst the corporate nonsense. And I, she hasn't had anything bad to say about Dave Filoni or John Favreau. And frankly, I don't think it was their fault. 
Uh, I think this decision was made for them. They obviously had, you know, plans for her and for her character in the Star Wars world, but just her attitude of drawing boundaries, but also showing a, like a kind of Christian compassion there. I, I don't know if she's a Christian. Sometimes she seems like it. She's at least coded culturally conservative. That's for sure. Uh, but I think we need to follow her example there. And uh, the example that Josh sets as well. And uh, speaking of knee-jerk reactions, I hear this strange sound on the rooftops. What is going on? <coughs> oh, Josh Shepard just rolled down out of the fireplace, uh, apparently prancing about the London rooftops. He's now covered in soot, which is to be expected when you're talking about Disney and other popular culture. Uh, he'll just start singing here in just a moment. Uh, Josh Shepard is a journalist, editor, and communications professional who often reports at the intersection of religion and culture. His articles have appeared in media outlets, including Christianity Today, The Federalist, Family Theater Productions, and The Roy's Report. A graduate of the University of Colorado and native of the great state of Texas, Josh has lived in the Washington, D.C. area for over a decade. He and his wife, Terry, also run a marketing consultancy called Shepherd Strategies. They stay busy raising two kids, currently ages three and almost five. You can see a bunch of his most recent articles in the show notes. And uh, Josh, you can just put your chimney sweep over there in the corner. <coughs> Thank you, Governor. Hello, hello, hello. Guys, he's going to do the entire show in the Dick Van Dyke British accent, <laughs> which fans just love, love hearing about. Uh, but nonetheless, Josh, we're glad to finally have you in here to talk about some Disney stuff. Thank you, Stephen. And, and Zach, great to be with you both. Uh, yeah, I know I'm not going to do the very awful Cockney accent that uh, Dick Van Dyke is known for. 98 years old, still a Disney legend. Appreciate that, that is man. amazing. And one of the best elements of, of popular culture, you know, Dick Van Dyke is one of those celebrities that, yeah, I don't remember his exact family history. For all I know, he could have been married 18 times by now, but he's got one of those universal fan appeals now because he's lived so long and he's so famous like Betty White or uh, uh, who's the name of the woman who played uh, Wonder Woman originally, Lynn Carter. There are just some things you just don't criticize, you know, and, and until recently, Disney has been one of them. Recently, that is, I'm guessing about uh, five, 10 years ago, just sort of as we've talked about on this show, uh, the, the log jam broke and suddenly fans felt safe to blast Disney for understandable reasons and, and less understandable ones, uh, which leads Disney fans, at least of their legacy stories, with the difficult task of fighting to love what they love. But let's start with chapter one, however, a recognition that Disney has had a lot of flops and not-so-secret agendas and activism. Uh, just going to get the bad news out of the way here. And uh, even after we had planned this show and uh, scheduled you, Josh, uh, we had the news breaking on February the 6th that Gina Carano, uh, the actress who played Cara Dune in the first two seasons of The Mandalorian, uh, had been uh, going after Disney now with a lawsuit. Uh, she had, uh, I'd actually saw the tweet uh, not too long ago. When Elon Musk bought Twitter and he said, hey, if anybody's been discriminated against or possibly illegally based on your social media activity, you know, speak up now. We'll help you out. Uh, she actually said, I think that would apply to me. And then what do you know? Uh, it turns out they think that it does. And I read the entire opinion, which starts off, by the way, with a Star Wars style crawl is saying a short time ago in a galaxy close to home. Now, Gino Carano did this and the Walt Disney Empire did this and they just have fun with it. And then 65 pages later, uh, I felt that they made a really strong case, especially when they said that other stars of the Mandalorian, including Pedro Pascal, the face and voice star anyway, 
had posted whatever the heck politically charged stuff they wanted, uh, arguably even more offensive on social media, and the company didn't do jack about it. Whereas Chrono faced a lot of uh, bullies on social media because she wouldn't put pronouns in her bio. There's a lot of criticism about Disney's not-so-secret agendas that is valid, and a lot of Disney fans, not just for political reasons, but cultural reasons, uh, now believe that these issues with the company represent a very real threat to social morality uh, and even public policy, but are especially threatening to kids. Uh, what I think is undeniable is that the company now, and they just had an earnings report last week as well that you were keeping up with, Josh, uh, has now lost a lot of brand credibility as well as plain greenbacks. So do you want to just speak to that, Josh, and like not just maybe some opinions on that, but factually, like what has been happening with the company of late and how has that impacted their bottom line? Yeah, they've definitely been on the decline, no question. Last year, I think, was sort of, you know, a coming to a head of, of a lot of things. And, you know, so many of their films just didn't perform at the box office. We can all see that. Two of the, the Marvel ones, you have the Marvels, you know, which I think, I don't know what that was, the 30, 31st or something in the franchise or, or something like that. It was, it's, it's been a long time, obviously, now that we've seen the MCU grow and expand. Uh, didn't do well. The Marvels was a huge uh, miss for them. Uh, and then uh, prior to that, uh, the, the Ant-Man sequel as well didn't do well. You know, so that was a couple of them. Haunted Mansion, I think we all expected didn't do well. Another theme park ride, you know, inspired uh, take on that on that ride and story. And then uh, Wish, which was, you know, kind of very much tied into the Disney 100 hashtag campaign that they, you know, really promoted in a big way was supposed to be sort of this culmination of so many princess themes and magic. And it's the, the origin story of the wishing star. And no one really went for it. You know, I mean, it, it really did not do well. Was a just massive uh, miss for them as well. And so just reflective, I think, of some things that just didn't work last year. And then, you know, we've seen this over the last few years, that there's been basically a movement among conservative families, among, you know, families kind of broadly in the culture that are seeing Disney move in a more ideological direction, seem to be prioritizing ideology, um, you know, the, the, the preaching of a certain progressive gospel, you might say, over just good storytelling. I think some people overstate that a little bit. And so I do, I don't want us to, you know, to necessarily overstate it. And I, I kind of try to look at Disney in those various, obviously Lucasfilm is, is in its own environment. Pixar is its own environment. Disney Animation Studios is its own place. So there are little divisions within Disney you kind of have to look at and see, okay, there are some producers here who are really trying to tell good stories, don't seem as ideological driven. But then obviously there are certain enclaves where you can tell Okay, they're obviously calling the shots, and it's that uh, that audio you referenced that was you know surreptitiously recorded, where you know they talked about the the queering of Disney and you know the not so secret agenda, etc. So um, you know it's like almost like no matter where you stand on those issues, I think parents are like, why would Disney be the one to introduce these these themes and these topics to children, especially when you're talking about toddlers and very very young children? So. Yeah, that's the biggest thing that I feel as a parent. So I've got kids in elementary, middle, and high school. And it's really the sense of betrayal that I feel as a parent from Disney, that Disney used to be the safe option. You know, there's a lot of things that, so we have Netflix, we have Prime, uh, we even get HBO for free because of our cell phone plan. Uh, there's very little on there that we let our kids just watch. We, we already knew that these were minefields. But Disney was supposed to be the, like, I don't have to think about it. It's like the easy button that I press, just put Disney on. And, you know, 
to be fair, there has been a lot of criticism towards Disney for a long time. Uh, just basically the follow your heart, uh, you know, trope or the uh, insta love, uh, you know, love at first sight kind of stuff. And it, it's not that Disney is is pure as the driven snow, but I don't have to worry quite as much about it as I do with other things. It's not as overtly harmful to children uh, through storytelling. So when Disney kind of took this hard turn towards ideological activism through their stories, it was the shift. It, it was it was the delta in the direction they were going. And now this new direction that was so jarring that it, it's a sense of whiplash. And it's it's like, well, wait a second. This is what I canceled. You know, a lot of people canceled Netflix to get Disney. And so now they're like, wait a minute. Now you're in the same camp is why I canceled Netflix in the first place. We canceled Disney, just full disclaimer, but uh, part of that was just due to the price increase. They they jacked that up quite a bit. And now many of the other streaming services are doing that because they're also having a lot of flops and trying to recoup that money. <laughs> yeah, the the trick there with the, with the cost issue with Disney Plus is you always get in on Black Friday. So they have their few day deal and it's like literally a few dollars, you know, a year versus like the 16, $17 that they're at right now per year. So Something to be aware of for folks. We've just tried to re- resubscribe. And by the way, you have to have an, a different email address uh, whenever you do that. <laughs> so just be, you know, <laughs> so that's that's the secret. That's the way to get like, you know, a third of the cost than you normally would with Disney. So so I think that works out then that uh, Zach's family would have been among those subscribers who dropped Disney Plus and then Josh were reflected in that earnings report. Now we're not a business profit investor podcast, but it is interesting then to see at least some evidence of the uh, often, um, casual flippant catchphrase go woke go broke to see that that does impact the bottom line and and again i think a discerning christian would need to defend what is good and oppose what is evil regardless of whether it's profitable for the company like i don't care whether or not they win or succeed if they are distributing bad ideas false religions then we need to oppose them but it is nice to have a little secondary evidence that you know like even people who are not christians are not into this stuff I did see from that earning report that they had uh, lost a lot of subscribers, uh, but that they had also shed some debt for the Disney Plus streaming service. So might refer to some previous episodes we've done about streaming and the bubble bursting and all of that. Uh, Netflix, for all of its faults, uh, seems to be uh, keeping uh, its reputation uh, and its subscriber base. Uh, Even while it also has a lot of debt, uh, it is just much more uh, solvent, apparently. Uh, but Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and all the other pluses, uh, they are actually in the minus, uh, in the red there. And and that leaves Disney desperate. Uh, for example, uh, Josh, you told me, I didn't see this because you were watching the news, uh, that Disney was going to release a surprise sequel this year. Uh, I guess we now know how far they'll go. Yeah, exactly. So Moana 2 comes out in November. That's And that's actually something that... This November. Out. This November, yeah. So it had been... In the works for, I guess, a couple of years, year and a half, two years, uh, from their TV animation division out of Vancouver. So, and then now, you know, Iger says, well, I saw it and it it just really surprised me how good it was. You know, like, that's not usually what I find (laughs) when I'm seeing a lot of the series on Disney Plus necessarily. And, uh, you know, he's like, we're just going to transform this into a theatrical release. The Rock is involved, I, I, so that's that's at least maybe a plus in their favor. He's he's a known factor um, in that the role of Maui, but uh, you you don't have Lin Manuel Miranda, so who did all the songs, you know, for the original. He and Mark Mancini co-wrote them. You, you do have Mark involved in this one, but 
So it's, you know, it's a very Lin-Manuel film, the first one. And, and interestingly, that was the most streamed film last year, period, among all services. Moana you know, was. It, yeah, Moana, mm. which so they see, I think, dollar signs, obviously, when they're like, okay, we can take this to theatrical, our other sequels and things that we're working on weren't ready yet. Let's, uh, let's, let's, you know, pull the surprise and uh, do Moana 2 in, in November. Interestingly, too, the, the stock market has been very positive about that. And the stock price for Disney has soared, uh, I think, on that news. So, you know, it, like you say, the, the, the financials are going to go up and down with Disney. We want to be about, you know, principles and, you know, looking at the deeper issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, too, I, I think the Star Wars uh, chaos has a lot to do with their earnings. Because when they acquired Star Wars, that brought a ton of people into the Disney universe. That's why a lot of people got Disney Plus. That's why we got it. We wanted to watch The Mandalorian. That's why I got it. That's exactly yeah. why. I And Mandalorian Season 1 and 2 are still very good. I'll talk about those in Chapter 3. When they announced, uh, I think it's Rangers of the New Republic, which I, I think Gina Carano was supposed to be in. And yes, she was going to be the star, yeah. like like uh, the A-tier instead of B-tier. That's actually yeah. all spelled out in her lawsuit. Right. And there were one or two other shows that look really, really interesting. And it's like, I, I would love to see those happen. And then they didn't, all those shows got canned, uh, for whatever reason. So that's like, well, what are we left with the star Wars fans? Oh, we're left with Kathleen Kennedy still being in charge of star Wars, which no true star Wars fan likes. Everyone Kathleen says, Kennedy, boo. No, no <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy's under the bed. Yes. I've seen the clips, not the whole thing because I'm a Christian, but I have seen the South park clips. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, most people want to see her fired and, and she's not. And so usually that's how a company does an about face. They say, okay, this person's no longer going to be in charge. Like, yeah, they've, they've done some okay things since then, which we'll talk about. Uh, there's some hopeful things, but it, the, she's still the face of Star Wars and she's very controversial to, to put it lightly. When you have a very controversial person still in charge, it seems like it's just going to be business as usual. Zach, have you seen Andor? I have. I, I loved Andor. Yeah, yeah. Zach's a big stand yeah. for Andor. I still need to see it just yeah. based on Zach's recommendation. Right. Uh, the way he sold it to me was like, it's as if Zack Snyder did a Star Wars yeah. series. And I'm like, well, sign me up. You know, Rebel Moon was okay, but maybe that'll be better than Rebel Moon. It's like a cyberpunk version of Star Wars in a way. And it's the political intrigue they tried to do for episode one, The Phantom Menace, without all the silly Jar Jar stuff, basically. But But see, even that is like, the confusing thing with that is, it seems like she kind of stepped out of the way and let them do something. But again, it's like there's the public perception that, oh, she's still in charge. So I don't know if I can trust it because I, again, I think what's happened with, with so many star Wars fans is our, our trust was broken in Disney to produce faithful, you know, retellings or, or reimaginings of star Wars. And it's really hard for a brand to get trust back once they've broken it. it you have to take really drastic steps to get, your loyal fans back, you know, I, I think the perception is they haven't done that to a, a great enough extent. So I, I'll agree with you to some degree here in that I think the sequel trilogy, of course, was a disaster. Rise of Skywalker particularly is one of the biggest train wrecks that has ever come to the big screen. I also think that Mando season three was awful, which, by the way, was really John Favreau entirely doing that. And, and Dave Filoni was off making Ahsoka. And so my, my contention with Star Wars is that look at Mando season one and two when John Favreau and Dave Filoni are working hand in hand, and they are equally partners in in a show. It really does capture the heart of Star Wars. I think John has the tech side; he has the the filmmaking side, the chops to do it. 
and the, the, the effects look great. And Dave obviously knows the lore. You know, he was obviously dressed up as characters going back in the day. And, you know, he's he is a true Star Wars fan. You have to realize that Dave, you know, who just been promoted to the chief creative officer over at Lucasfilm. He is uh, the Star Wars, the fans fan. I mean, he can get into deep discussions of the lore. And he is really George Lucas's Padawan in many ways. You know, George brought him on to Clone Wars to, to uh, you know, in like the, the first season to start that show. By the way, he pulled him over from Avatar The Last Airbender, you know, which, you know, he was on the first season of that. So. I tend to trust Dave. I know he can get a little bit deep into the lore. And so that's the thing is I think John actually helps him. John Favreau kind of pulls him back into like, okay, we can't just talk about the space whales and just live in this, <laughs> in these kind of weird things that you've created, Dave. Like, you know, you have to let, try to bring in the, the casual fan and, and make sure you're not getting too deep in the lore. And so they actually balance each other out pretty well. It's, it was disappointing uh, to see Mando season three, but I think Ahsoka honestly was pretty good. I, that's, that's a, I think it's solid Star Wars storytelling. It's, it's very hero's journey, you know, um, of, of her. And, and there are, it, it's not like every female character in that is some kind of Mary Sue, you know, perfect per- character who doesn't have struggles. They, there actually is a lot there. So I, I don't know that Kathy is the problem over at Lucasfilm. She can be good at actually empowering creatives and or a perfect example. You know, she brings in producer, Tony Gilroy, writer, producer, and he, she really lets him run with that, you know, and that is a very expensive show. All, so many practical effects involved in that looks beautiful and has so much to say about the nature of rebellion and political themes and just the, the nature of freedom. Really. It's kind of a freedom fighter show. I don't know that, that Kathy is, is entirely to blame. And she's, you know, she has an incredible resume of being involved in Jurassic park and, back with Spielberg for decades. So I think that there's probably some outside elements within Disney, maybe occasionally who are trying to push them in a more ideological direction. Well, in that, in that case, it's not just Disney that's being affected by these. It's all manner of studios. I mean, there, there's just a a whole lot of practical considerations as well as, you know, financials. I was just reading today, actually, as we record, uh, there was an article out uh, about how and why Warner brothers is still going to very possibly just delete just Thanos snap the coyote versus Acme film from all existence. They wanted $80 million for it from a streamer and Paramount was even going to release it to theaters. Apparently it's so weird because like the coyote and Roadrunner is a Warner brothers, you know, the shield came out and, and, and that was their thing. And yet they can't even release their own movie. And not only they're going to not release it, they're going to purge it by all by at least this one reputable account and fans are an uproar i'm in an uproar i'm an original you know release the snyder cut activist and now i'm like release the coyote cut uh release coyote versus acme uh i don't want stories good stories to be destroyed for such reasons and yet they're also being eroded uh the very idea and purpose of stories is being eroded from the inside by these kinds of pragmatic and or secular religious identity religions whether or not uh, Kennedy specifically is at fault, uh, she has become at least a figurehead, yeah, maybe unfairly. Say, she's the symbol. Yeah. Exactly. And if you are a leader, then it is your responsibility to deal with that stuff. And, and, and she has not done that. And by all accounts, that South Park parody tried to kind of play it both ways by having like an evil Kathleen yeah. Kennedy from another <laughs> universe because multiverse, you know, they're roasting yeah. the multiverse at the same time. So fans who decided they're going to hate on Kathleen Kennedy and assassinate uh, the reputation of a Kennedy there <laughs> get their way. But also, if you feel like defending her, then you also have the real one that shows up in the cartoon. Uh, it's not I mean, it's their animated version of a real one. Anyway, that's a bunch of franchise stuff. And I, I one thing that I hear and um, Josh, this may cross over into chapter two, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. 
I do hear some fans say, well, this is honestly, this is people who say this because they think they're supposed to say it, but what they really want is different. They say, well, why do we get all these retcons and requels and sequels and and all of this? Why do they keep extending the franchise? Why don't they ever try something new? The answer is, at least if we're talking about Disney, they had tried something new. You guys, did you ever hear a strange world? Yeah, failed hard. Not because it was brand new, but because people got a whiff of the agenda that was in there uh, and and they didn't like it. And it may have something to do with Disney trying like kind of whimsical sci-fi, which didn't work out well for them with Treasure Planet in 2002. Too bad. It's a great movie. I'd put that as a, one of the newer Disney great movies. And it's a very much of a man's hero's journey movie, too, by the way. But I didn't see Strange World. Nobody saw Strange World. That failed. Wish failed. Don't know if that's because they thought it was new or just because people were sick of Disney. But now, Josh, we're getting sequels to Zootopia, Frozen 3, and apparently Toy Story is not 12. actually ended. Toy Story 12, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be old and rolling around in our Wally chairs by the time Toy Story 22 <laughs> comes out. No, it's actually Toy Story 5, which, okay, I am going to be offering the normie opinion. They should have stopped after Toy Story 3. That was the perfect ending. Do some direct-to-DVD stuff. And then and then stop. But they just keep wanting to open the toy box and play with their old toys. I mean, Woody and Buzz, like they got separated at the end of Toy Story 4. And oh, it was going to be so such a bittersweet ending. Goodbye, partner and all of that. And now I guess we're just rolling it back. But uh, before we move on, Josh, any thoughts about all those uh, all those new sequels? Well, as the saying goes, Disney's a a victim of their own past success. You pegged it when you said it it is a box office issue. You know, I mean, it was about. 10, 12 years ago, when they were putting out mid-budget films, they were putting out a lot more original type things. And they, in the last decade under Iger, they definitely went all in on franchises, all in on sequels, because that is what performs, you know? So it's unfortunate. I, I was encouraged, for instance, by uh, Elemental this last summer. And I know not everyone was. I don't, I don't understand all the crit around that. But I thought that was simply a romantic comedy that was pretty fun and pretty cute that told a male-female romance story in this fantastical world. Initially, I felt like it was going to be too much like Inside Out or Zootopia, but it was its own thing. It's, it's a really great immigrant story, family story, you know, that had, you know, just some fun. It, it was like my, Greek, my Big Fat Greek Wedding essentially animated. You know, it was this kind of a, you know, a, a cultural uh, differences kind of a love story um, between the, this water person and this fire person. So, you know, that was encouraging to me. Now we're getting this whole wave of sequels announced. Frozen 3 as well, by the way, was was put in that announcement uh, in addition to Moana 2 that we're going to get this November. So, yeah, I, I have very big doubts that those will be worth watching, you know. So uh, that's it's them retreading ground. It's It's popular brands. It's what Disney's known for is franchises. And, you know, it's it's a, a repetition of things rather than breaking new ground and that's that's unfortunate to see so josh it strikes me uh as the 2020s version of the old 1990s direct to home release sequels where they would farm out the animation to kind of a deeg league type studio in australia or something not not the you know the gold tier animators uh over in the the main disney studio and then you would get peter pan to bambi to lion king to lion king one and a half bambi one and a half Bambi meets Sleeping Beauty 3.5. Like, it just kept going and going, and people got tired of it. And uh, 
you know, previously the Disney strategy had been, hey, these are animated classics. They are Americana. They are part of your parents' generation, your great-grandparents' generation. We're going to keep them in this secret vault, a pocket dimension that can only be opened with the magic words on special 25th and 40-year anniversaries. And then you'll get the glorious VHS clamshell package. I remember we got the, the Cinderella the VHS in 1995, which we watched on the way to Walt Disney World. And it was so, so much Disney, so everywhere. And, and now just Disney is just everywhere. And it, it's kind of lost its specialness. And it's kind of lost that prestige. Because if uh, all of their movies are supposedly super duper classics, then none of them are. Or, or so goes the perception. You know, you know, Walt, Walt used to say, I don't do sequels because you can't top pigs with pigs it is what he said about, you know, not doing a, uh, you know, a, a sequel to the three pigs, etc. So uh, he maybe did one or two sequels. I mean, he did Savage Sam, which was a sequel to Old Yeller. I've never heard of that. I'm today years old when I heard about this. That was a live action, though, not an animated. Well, you won't find it on Disney Plus. There are hundreds of uh, of Walt era films that are missing from Disney Plus. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you you won't. It's not commonly known. There are some reasons for that. Well, I'm sure I know in the in the next segment, as we'll go into that, there are some reasons. You know that some uh, films perhaps are not always uh, the most uh, culturally relevant or uh, you know, sensitive in some of these manners, but. Um, yeah, I, I love that he was about originality. He, he just, he really did have that understanding of like, we have to, we, he wanted to, to tell different genres, you know, he, he loved fantasy. He told the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne stuff. He told Treasure Island back in the day, but you know, he also did a lot of historical, uh, stories, you know, he did, uh, other types of legends and fairy tales. So it's like, he was always in, and he really pioneered not only the animated feature film, but also you know, documentaries and, and telling a story with documentaries, you know, I mean, uh, so there's a lot of, of ways that uh, he was curious about a lot of things. And uh, he, he gave you that variety. You definitely don't see that uh, as you know, with with the company today. So now that we're defending Walt Disney a little bit, but also uh, challenging some of his worldview, uh, we're going to jump into chapter two about that. Uh, this is a really important one, I think. And that's where we start moving from the rightful negativity and the skepticism about Disney. Uh, to maybe some mythologies that people have concocted in order to uh, be a little too nostalgic. And maybe we need to challenge those uh, as we move towards fighting to love the best of Disney. First off, however, uh, we notice that the magic is gone from Disney. It's been lost. And so we'd like the, uh, the lost magic to return, which leads me to our sponsor. Number two, author David Liberto uh, with his fantasy novel Return of the Lost Ones which features two young men, two legendary families, one infamous, one noble. Their fateful choices converge in a tale of adventure and peril in Return of the Lost Ones. As Paul, born to a line of blessed heroes, strives to reclaim his family's honor, Stefan faces a crossroads that could lead to ruin or redemption. Together, they must unite to save a village from the grip of darkness and creatures of myth. Will they rise to the challenge or be consumed by the legacies that haunt them? Discover their stories in the thrilling first book where honor, bravery, and legends collide. Begin your journey with Paul and Stefan, where every decision shapes destiny. That is Return of the Lost Ones, a fantasy novel from David Liberto. You can find that awesome cover and more info in our show notes for episode 199 or at lorehaven.com slash podcast. All right, chapter two, myths about the magic. Uh, Josh, what are critics getting wrong about Disney? Uh, what do we see that maybe some people are 
painting previous versions of Disney in way too positive a light uh, in order to make uh, the news now seem even worse than it already is. Yeah, it's a really good point. I I respect Walt Disney as an innovator and as a producer, and he was he's a unique man. He was a singular figure in the 20th century. And so, you know, I mean, the first to integrate sound into picture, you know, so many other things in terms of animation, uh, created the first animated feature film, introduced the idea of theme parks. The, the man was a genius when it came to combining sort of art and commerce. You know, some people have this this picture of Uncle Walt. You know, he used to be on Sunday nights. You know, he'd be be in the on the on the TV on ABC. I'm introduced here to tell the you about my latest picture. Yeah, yeah, introduced the wonderful world of Disney. He'd give you the the latest you know stuff that was going on at Disneyland, and that was a persona. You know, he was not he he wasn't he was there to make money. You know, I mean, he was a genius when it, as a businessman, and so but he also I think understood creativity he understood some of the base values of america you know and and the base values of the society at the time and so um you know i don't think he was an orthodox christian i just i i just don't see that in his in his journey Uh, i was i was telling you Stephen. i was just reading a, a guidepost article that he wrote back in 1949 that talks about the idea of divine inspiration really interesting because he says hey i i i take my uh two daughters to to sun to to sunday school every week uh, you know, I grew up in a, as a son of a, you know, going to a congregational church every week. We, I believe prayer is a very vital part of, of our lives and that we need to depend on God. And it's like, wow, this is really something. There's some of the things he admits in that he's never said in any other venue. And that was kind of in the first like four paragraphs of that article. The next 20 are him actually promoting his film that was just out so dear to my heart and saying, well, there's this prayer angle in that. Let me tell you the whole story. And so it, you kind of can see it was him saying a bit about his faith. At the upfront, but also, you, you know, promoting his film to a Christian audience, you know, in the other 20 <laughs> paragraphs of the story. So, so that's been going on for a while is a, is a studio going after the inspirational market using Christian ease or evangelical ease or just civil religious jargon, uh, but not actually having a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. A figure that was definitely influenced that he was influenced by would be Norman Vincent Peale, um, which is the power of positive thinking. And that is really kind of a, a humanist type gospel that is about kind of picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's it's just it's not a real focus at all on on sin or judgment or the the sort of core ideas of the gospel. And and you see that even in, in I think Walt's films like Pollyanna. You know, Pollyanna is sort of an encapsulation of his whole worldview, you would say. And it's worth watching. It's a really interesting film that I think carries his whole message of sort of civil religion. I mean, you know, you see America the Beautiful played in it. Uh, with you know uh, Haley Mills wearing an American flag, and but the the minister in it, you know, in that film, is totally whole message, cribbing from Jonathan Edwards' sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, and it was death comes unexpectedly, and he's like, I know, I know, you don't expect it to come, but it comes, you know, and it's it's very much this whole judgment and and uh, a mocking in a sense of of a fundamentalist uh, version is what he would he would say, but you know, and then the message of the film is. If you look for the bad in mankind, you will surely find it. And, you know, and that's, uh, and so it's very much, you know, Pollyanna plays the glad game and she looks for the good in people and she kind of changes people by seeing the good in them. And there's, there's some positive to that. You can, you know, I mean, you know, goodness, Fred Rogers was a Presbyterian minister. He, he believed in some of those ideas and he brought out the best in people. I, I see what you're saying there. Um, but I, you know, if you are, if the idea of repentance or sin or, judgment is going to, you know, be anathema to your worldview, you know, that's, you know, he wasn't, 
unorthodox Christian in that sense. You know, you just don't see that carried in his films necessarily. Um, so I don't know if either one of you have thoughts. Oh, I wonder how the uh, animators who went on strike against Disney uh, back in the day would have thought about this view of optimism. It, it is unfortunate that there's a recklessness to this kind of uh, optimism that can shield not only the, the powerful person using it uh, from the consequences of refusing to admit the bad in people, uh, but it also means that, uh, it, you know, you are in a sense privileged enough to be able to be so publicly optimistic. While in the uh, smoke-filled back rooms, you know, you're underpaying people or you are cutting out their artistic achievements from under them. Uh, that is unfortunately part of the whole idea of movie making. It is because idols twist human creativity, uh, either at the individual level or the corporate level, uh, certainly apart from Jesus Christ. And that has affected the Disney studio as much as it affected anyone else. And that's not new, folks. Maybe we're just able to see it more because uh, information is spread a little bit more democratically now. Uh, and the studio PR system uh, certainly uh, runs in uh, you know full swing in uh, in a lot of ways, but it can't cover up these kinds of things. And anybody with a YouTube channel now can do an entire documentary, for example, about how Walt Disney, you know, Mr. Americana, Mr. Hope for the Future, wanted to literally make a techno dystopian government under his own rule in the Orlando area. That was the original idea of Epcot Center. Domed city or not, the only reason it didn't get off the ground is because, hey, you know, you can't do that kind of thing in America and invite people to live there. They have to have representation in their local government. But you're saying, no, these people are my people. They belong in my dystopian Epcot Center world of tomorrow. Uh, that's just not going to work out. And that gets into even some modern politics about Disney's tax breaks and everything over there in the, uh, the state of Florida. But it just goes to show that I think, yeah, his his optimism, his moral worldview was completely unmoored uh, from the gospel, anchored in American civil religion at best. And so you get some traditional values. But yeah, this whole power positive thinking thing, it's it's obviously very clear. And in fact, it's interesting that he wrote for Guidepost because was that not Norman Vincent Peale's magazine? It was. A bit of a kind of a mainline Protestant like erosion of the gospel uh, in response to a, a lot of the, the more biblical behaviors of, of the day. I think you can see the idea of, of providence and spiritual ideas in just the fairy tales that he pulled forward. So, I mean, from the Grimm brothers, etc., there were consequences to actions. These are ultimately moral fairy tales in many ways, you know, whether it's Cinderella or, or Bambi or, you know, it is about the moral choices that these characters make. And I don't know that he was entirely devoid of morality. It was, it's, it's just maybe a real orthodox understanding of Christianity and theology you know, I wouldn't look to Disney for that, you know, but I think, I mean, the idea of conscience, you know, and, and Jiminy Cricket and all that, you know, that's, that can be a powerful, a powerful idea that certainly has resonance with the gospel. I was going to say just on a practical level, I don't know really whether Star Wars fans like me had the right expectations from when Disney bought out the franchise, you know, eight years ago or so now, uh, obviously they were going to make uh, prequels and requels and, and spinoffs. And I'm, you know, I, I think we had, what we had hoped was that they would just keep the story going, that they would keep the, the main saga going. And th there was an extent to which I still liked the sequels because at least it was a new story, but the, the actual problem with them was, which was what you just said, Josh, is that, uh, actions didn't really have consequences. There was really no meaning to what people chose. So starting, you know, in the last Jedi, it's like uh, everything they do fail, but it doesn't really matter. 
And then, of course, somehow Palpatine returned, because <laughs> which just erases the original trilogy. And, you know, and then, but they kind of signaled they were going this way when they declared everything before 2014 to not be canonical. And it's like, well, okay, I, I can understand how you're trying to start with a clean slate, but you're inheriting a franchise, so you can't really do that. I, I understand you can't take everything that people have written in the spinoff you know, books and try to incorporate that. Cause a lot of that stuff contradicted it. I think the biggest problem was they didn't uh, hold on to like a clear thread. They didn't have a through line that they were going to hold on to and say, we're going to keep going on this thread or this, you know, multiverse or whatever. And they didn't really seem to have a, a story runner that, that was holding all of this together. And, you know, this is the, the same problem that other big companies have had, like that, that Apple has had since uh, Steve Jobs died. You know, he was an innovator as well as a communicator and a visionary. Uh, you know, typically those roles are in, are in different people. Uh, Steve Jobs was unique in that he had multiple of these disciplines in himself, whereas now it's these are kind of divided among different people. And it was the same way with Walt Disney, that he was a unique blend of a lot of different skills that a lot of CEOs just don't have all at once. Well, that leads to one of the myths I think that uh, you had pointed out, Josh, is is this myth that when Walt Disney died, there hasn't been any Disney, good Disney movie ever since, uh, which is just simply not true. Uh, even if you just take into account the renaissance in the 90s, it started with The Little Mermaid in the late 80s and then kept right on going right through, I think, the, the end of the 90s with these uh, brilliantly animated uh, classics. Uh, that were you know, 2D animated, it was just the Lion King, Aladdin, no particular order here. You know, maybe failed a little bit with Pocahontas and the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but back then, uh, my family wasn't even seeing Disney movies, and this was just lack of interest, uh, I think. It had nothing to do with a boycott that eventually came about in the late 90s. But these movies were everywhere. Everybody loved them, and the merch was everywhere, and the Happy Meal toys are everywhere. Or was it Burger King then? I forget. So it's just it's just not true to say, well, Disney's failed ever since, you know, good old Uncle Walt, you know, passed on or got put into cryogenic storage, whichever <laughs> the legend is there. Uh, he died in 1966, but Disney's had a lot of good stuff since then. And then even the early MCU movies, the Marvel movies, like those still hold up. Uh, don't don't lose that. There are still some good directors and storytellers around and we'll get to some of those uh, more of those in chapter three. Yeah, I would, I would very much agree with you. I'm enjoying right now introducing my kids to, to some of the, the Renaissance films, Beauty and the Beast. You know, I have my, my little uh, four-year-old going around singing, Kill the Beast, um, <laughs> sometimes. And, uh, you know, those are, those are great, you know, amazingly animated. Just And you shouldn't miss the fact that there were many Christians involved in those productions. You know, Glenn Keane, strong Christian believer. Uh, Tangled animated. is fabulous, and he directed that. Yeah, it absolutely is, and he it was it was that film, unfortunately, that was his last with Disney, and he said, "There's too many decision makers, too many cooks in the kitchen here. I'm not having the freedom that I want to to do what I want to do." Really sad to lose him. He's he was a master storyteller, remains a master storyteller. He's trying to do some other things, but um, you know, Beauty and the Beast, that whole transformation scene of the Beast, you know, to to human form. I mean, if you go back to the DVD on Beauty and the Beast. There is a whole special feature where he narrates it and says, this is about the Christian gospel to me. And this is about, mm. you know, uh, actually the transformation that we experience when, when we accept Jesus. And it's, you know, it's like, whoa, this isn't a Disney film. And, and the, he's a man of real, you know, incredible devout faith. You know, same with certain figures like a Tom Bancroft, you know, who was involved in Mulan and, 
other uh, productions of that era. So, you know, yeah, it is totally false to think that Disney's even best stuff came out during Walt's lifetime. I think there was some there. I mean, I do see Mary Poppins, I think is a high point. And he won several Academy Awards for that film. And it's a brilliant film. And that's the money from that is what enabled him to then build Disney World. You know, I didn't get much into my history on my with with Disney myself, but I kind of married into a Disney family. And, uh, you know, my wife's parents uh, met at Disney back in 1977 when they were both working at Tomorrowland, got married in 79. They went on. He was an Air Force guy, so they moved around the country, but they moved back to Orlando 15 years later. And then uh, my wife, Terry, worked for Disney. Uh, you know, her dad worked for Disney for a decade in security. And so, you know, to, it's interesting because now I've gotten got to hear about the company from the inside out and understand more of their impact on, on Central Florida. You know, which is incredible. Central Florida has gone from four million tourists a year to seventy-two million. You know, <laughs> thanks yeah. to Disney. So I mean, it's it's changed an entire state. Uh, you know, through their presence there. But since Walt's death in '66, I mean, they, they've done films like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, which is just an incredibly innovative uh, you know work. And I, I even see that in in Black Panther. You know, and, and Chadwick Boseman and the the weight that he gave to that role. You know, I think that's a, a brilliant film that that is that is peak Disney in a sense. You know, you could you could point to Enchanted as well with Amy Adams and mm-hmm. so many good ones that have come out. Um, Remember the Titans with Denzel. Even recently, you know, I would say in, uh, in you know Elemental and some of the other ones, you you can find parts of the company that are that are doing good work. Well, and it's just funny to think about the fact that uh, the Chronicles of Narnia came to the screen because of Disney. Even though when Walt was still alive, C.S. Lewis adamantly opposed the idea of a Narnia adaptation to the screen. And here's, here's a great quote that was gathered by uh, our friends at Narnia Web. Uh, Lewis said this in 1959, quote, But I am absolutely opposed, adamant, isn't it, to a TV version. Anthropomorphic animals, when taken out of narrative into actual visibility, always turn into buffoonery or nightmare, at least with photography. Cartoons. If only Disney did not combine so much vulgarity with its genius would be another matter. A human pantomime Aslan would be to me blasphemy. <laughs> and, you know, it's just funny that it's like he couldn't predict, obviously, computer graphic uh, images and, and the fact that they had a live action Narnia, but with uh, obviously a cartoon, but better than a cartoon. And, you know, there was a BBC cartoon, which I, I've never watched my It was a BBC. Wife. It was a live action, and that is buffoonery. Oh, I mean, that, a lot that's of people, All the people love it, but yeah. But there's I mean, a there's cartoon, two guys isn't the there also? There's a cartoon, but I don't know much about it. And oh, yeah. I would say that, yeah, that's, that had nothing to do with Disney, though. Yeah, yeah The so Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe 05 is still, uh, frankly, yeah. the best adaptation, frankly. Right, right. I, I loved it. And honestly, it was because of that film that we got into the books. I, I probably wouldn't have picked up the books except for the film. And we do have to thank Disney for that. So. Way to go. Right. And Way anybody who says, Disney. well, Disney is woke now and that's just completely new. Do remember that we had us a whole boycott in the late nineties of the Walt Disney company. Dr. Dobson was doing it and the family research council was doing it. And the SBC was doing it. It was a whole lot of evangelical greats who decided that Disney is no longer friendly to the family. And then, you know, my family too, like, Oh, I guess we ought to not go to Disney no more. I think that was kind of ended when uh, Toy Story came out because, well, that wasn't Disney. Uh, that was that was Pixar and Disney's just helpers. Well, then Disney bought Pixar, so that would have ended it anyway. But the Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe, I think, did a lot to dispel some of that uh, bad will toward Disney. They made some legitimately good stuff. 
uh, kind of the gay rights idea was just fairly mainstream by then. You couldn't boycott everybody. But the fact is that Disney was an early adopter of that stuff with their gay days in the theme parks. Uh, and now you just got the next iteration of that. So all at once, Disney, at least you know, in the last 34 years, has kind of already been doing this. But uh, it is worse now. But they kind of were already doing it. So don't clean up Disney's rep too much earlier. Uh, there was a lot of mixed motives, Americana, humanism, you know, positive thinking stuff in there. Discern early Disney almost as much as you would discern new Disney. Well, let's move to chapter three, though, and talk a little bit more positively about the Disney stuff, past, present, and maybe even future, but not without a uh, nod to our third sponsor, the Realm Makers 2024 conference. Hey, maybe you think you can write better than Disney. If so, then you need training. Since 2013, Realm Makers has been helping writers of fantasy, science fiction, and other fantastical stories find their community and learn their craft from an all-star faculty. Now the Christian-led organization will return to St. Louis, Missouri for its 12th annual live conference this July 18th through 20th, 2024. Public registration opened February 1st at realmmakers.com. Authors can attend in person, staying at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel for the three-day event. Or they can attend the event remotely on the dedicated Realmsphere social network. At Realmakers, we've been connecting Christian creators for over a decade, said marketing director J.J. Johnson. Our annual conference provides a supportive space where authors can take their next creative steps. Realmmakers is where authors find not just inspiration, but lasting relationships that fuel their success. Get all that info at our show notes for episode 199 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast. All right, chapter three. Now we get to celebrate. We've had the bad news, almost like the law that leads us to repentance and mourning, and that is real. But we've also seen some myths busted, and there's even a few more we could talk about uh, if, if time permitted. But let's move into Faithful Fantasy, chapter three. How can we love Disney anyway? A verse, Josh, that I was thinking of was uh, Romans 14, 16, where the Apostle Paul is talking about controversial issues uh, about which Christians can come to different uh, conclusions. And he kind of summarizes it by saying, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And that's part of a whole argument that the Apostle is making there. But I think we can also apply that to things like stories, uh, stories that seem tarnished by the bad behaving uh, progressivist or, or sex identity notions of modern Disney. But let's not lose what was good and what continues to be good. Uh, don't let the present nonsense, for example, ruin your lovable Disney films. And Josh and Zach were talking about some of those uh, that whom, whom name checked Enchanted. That was the movie that my girlfriend, now my wife, and I first saw 2007, I believe it was. And there is just almost everything good about that movie. By the way, it wasn't Frozen uh, that critiqued the whole instant love trope. It was Enchanted that did it first. And I understand there was a direct-to-streaming sequel. I never saw it. Uh, I hear tell it wasn't all that great. Uh, I wish that they had brought in like the same crew who made the original movie, uh, maybe for a more um, excellent uh, adaptation. It sounded like they were going in a good direction there. But yeah, I just I didn't want to see the sequel. Yeah, I, I did like an hour-long podcast on that with some friends, so you should totally check it out. It's interesting. It's uh, We'll get dis- that link in the show notes. We yeah, really need to do that then. On okay. Disenchanted, it's, they did bring back Alan Minkin to do the songs, and so I appreciated that. That clearly had a direct-to-streaming budget. There were some you know, scenes in it where like, uh, the prince was going to be fighting a dragon, and like, it totally was like, wow, where was the special effects here? Because it, it <laughs> oh, looks awful. No. So it's like some smoke, and you, you really will be underwhelmed by that stuff. It's a little bit of a 
female centric kind of story, you know, where all the male characters are a little bit are kind of sidelined. And to, to your point, Zach, about uh, The Last Jedi earlier, you know, that's what I really see in that movie is Poe Dameron. Any decision he makes, any line he makes is immediately shot down. You know, it was a very some kind of gender politics stuff going on in that film. And that is an aspect of something to be aware of in Disney. It is, I think, certain places. It's not I don't know that it's like all of it overarching. But uh, if you know the the name Stephen Gradenus, great writer who does a lot of, uh, you know, Christian thought. And he's pointed out that Linda Wolverton, if you see that name in a script, who's a screenplay writer for Disney, she's done uh, the the two Alice movies, the two Maleficent movies. And in both of those franchises, it's very much like, okay, all the male characters are dumb and have no motivation that is uh, discernible and are, you know, just kind of walking around pointless and are seen as, as, you know, not, uh, don't have agency and don't have, don't, aren't actually active in the story. And so you, you will, you'll see that in the Alice movies and in Maleficent. And, you know, he's like, it's pretty intentional. Like this is a gender politics thing they're doing here. So something to be aware of, um, I, I felt a show that I liked, um, that Disney did for a while, once upon a time, the, the early seasons were good. They had good, they had male characters that were active and, and present. And, and then the later seasons, it was sort of, the female characters were very much dominant in it. And it wasn't like there was an equal sort of partnership and teamwork in how they would go about the plots. Interesting bit of not that we're, I know we're supposed to be turning a corner here, but that is very much a trend. It's really hard to let go of the negative stuff though, because enchanted was so good. I'm actually even more depressed hearing about disenchanted. I suppose the title should have been a giveaway. We're going to subvert everything you loved about this story that celebrated the union between a prince and a princess, even though it turns out a little bit different than you expected by the end. It is so devoted to marriage. Like Amy Adams's princess Giselle literally breaks down in tears in the middle of a law office at the very idea that two people could get divorced and they would no longer live together forever and ever. And the movie doesn't make fun of her at all. It is using that to actually challenge this whole idea. Look, I understand things happen. Relationships are difficult. Like the, the couple in the movie, like obviously they were just fighting over silly things and they really did need to get back together. But it was wonderful to see that celebration of marriage just overt. And obviously someone who was writing that or directing that or both, like either they had a good marriage or they'd seen a good marriage and they wanted to celebrate the good rather than tearing it apart and saying, now men and women can't get along. Someone's yeah. got to be boss. I don't like that someone's got to be boss thing. Yeah, and this uh, this is a great representation. This is a callback to chapter one here. But w what's taken over Disney is this zero-sum mentality that the only way to elevate this group or person or whatever identity is to denigrate this other group or identity. And that's just such a poverty mindset and just a mindset of just revenge and yeah, it's just, it's a negative aesthetic ultimately that, that doesn't lead to things you love. It just points out the things that you hate. And yeah, you know, we, we have to be careful as, as fans of stories that we don't have the similar mindset of, well, in order for good Christian stories to excel, then Disney must fail. And we always That's have really to be good point. bombing it. Um, you know, we, we can still celebrate And but, but, you know, I mentioned Steve Jobs a minute ago. He was very famous for saying, uh, we need to get away from the mindset that for in order for Apple to succeed, Microsoft must fail. Now they they took plenty of jabs. That, you know, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. Those commercials they they made fun of a lot of things, but they weren't trying to destroy the other company because you know it, it, it's sort of like contagious. Like once 
people lose interest in stories and they're going to lose interest in a lot of things story related. And so we, we should want there to be good stories. And I, I think at times we just have to remind Disney of like, here were your good ones, like do more of this. Uh, yeah, we, we can, you know, refrain from buying the new ones, all that we want, but we, we should celebrate the, the classics. You know, I, I've got on my list to watch the sword in the stone with my kid, when my younger two kids, they've never seen it. That's one of my all time favorites. Uh, we, we've watched Robin hood plenty of times, but the sword in the stone, I, I just love that movie and it's just a fun and a beautiful, uh, animation. And so I, I think by engaging in those things, by focusing on what we love rather than just what makes us groan, I, I think that will bring about better things. Maybe I'm falling into the positive thinking thing here. I don't know. No, no, this, this it's positive thinking that comes after the recognition of guilt and the bad stuff. That's very different. We're not doing the Pollyanna thing here. I think this is more of a Christian view of, of positive thinking, uh, deconstructing the bad or, or really behaving more like a good fan government, uh, rewarding what is good while also punishing what is evil. And punishing just means I don't want to watch it. I don't want to pay for it. Zach, you mentioned some positive stuff there. Uh, I've, I've mentioned earlier, like Treasure Planet from 2002. That bombed at the theaters. It shouldn't have. It was a fantastic, adventurous, whimsical space fantasy boys movie by um, Clementa Musker, right? That was the Aladdin directors. Like, this mm-hmm. was their passion project. They kept putting it off. Disney did. And then they finally said, okay, you can make Treasure Island in space if you really want to. And then it bombed. So I guess it didn't work out. But fans do love it. It's kind of a cult classic. And I really love it. Soundtrack's great, too, by James Newton Howard. A lot of the Pixar, I mean, don't lose the good Pixar movies. Guys, like going back to 1995, Toy Story was an actual groundbreaker. Toy Story 2, even more so. Toy Story 3 was a fantastic conclusion to the trilogy. It's like there's an original trilogy for Toy Story and Star Wars. We don't recognize anything else now. And then many Pixar directors, though, are are professing Christians. Andrew Stanton of Finding Nemo uh, and Wall-E. He was drawing out in World Magazine, you guys. Uh, in uh, 2008, the biblical parallels between the Wally story uh, and the biblical narrative. Uh, and then uh, Pete Doctor as well, Inside Out. And um, I guess I, he, he directed Elemental, right, Josh? So he didn't, he's a professing he, Christian. He didn't direct Elemental. He's just now obviously the president exactly, of the oh, company. That's right. He's executive yeah, producer. He's, that's right. He's been, he's been now elevated to chief creative officer of, that's of, right. uh, but of he was Pixar. Up, he was Inside Out. What else did he do? Yeah, Up uh, in Monsters, Inc. That's right. That's his. right. That's right. And all of those are very great like stories. I wouldn't say they're Christian in theme, but our at least my standard here at Lorehaven is if you're a Christian and you make a story, it's 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 a Christian story unless you got a chip on your shoulder. And I don't think he does. I think those movies are still wonderful. Yeah, Soul as well is he was kind of co-directed and co- right wrote that and it's it has some interesting ideas about eternity and not everybody, you know, I think resonated with it, but he did some interviews around it that talked about how it was very much resonating with his Christian faith. And I think he tried to have it informed, I suppose, even from other religious traditions, he said, about how they saw the afterlife. But it is, you know, his work in general, I think Pete is really interesting to think about and as a leader, because I think he does, he has made and created some of the best Pixar films. I mean, Up and Inside Out, particularly, and, and Monsters, Inc., you know, all those stand as just incredible, you know, monuments of cinema. And he is a little bit of a arm around your shoulder kind of friendly guy and very introspective. And so for him to become chief creative officer after Lasseter kind of resigned in scandal, obviously, big, um, you know, a, a lot of controversy around that. And Lasseter had a particular vision. 
I think he always, you know, you, you saw some people like Brendan Chapman leave, uh, you know, Pixar in, in the midst of, for instance, Brave, because they said, oh, Lassiter's got this one narrow thing and he's trying to push us into this one box. And, I, you know, she, there was people who didn't appreciate that. But he, he was tireless, I think, very much like Jobs. He had a high creative standards, was trying to push people to know the motivation of the characters, give us a strong story, give us a great third act, you know, and you got that during the Lassiter era. Pete Docter is much more hands-off as a creative executive and as an executive producer now over, you know, I think. So you look at these this run of films that a lot of people are like, wow, this is way outside the box, you know, Turning Red and Up, or what was that called? Onward. You know, Onward Luca. was nice. It, Onward, people yeah. missed it because of the lockdowns, but I, I liked Onward. I yeah. didn't think it was woke. And, well, there was one little bit of woke, but it wasn't, it didn't spoil the whole lump. You know, it, it was a good movie. And Luca's the same way. I think Luca was a great story of friendship and of kids, you know, on a summer and all this. And, you know, that was, it was, it's a great film. Uh, Turning Red, I think is, you know, a lot of reasons to be concerned about that film. And, and I think, um, Pete Doctor was kind of hands off. He, she had a particular vision, the director, and he just kind of, you know, improved it around the margins. I think tried to make sure that it, it generally, you know, followed the Pixar model and had a quality to it uh, visually. But, you know, the themes of that film are very much anti Inside Out. You know, I mean, Inside Out is like, okay, the, the teenager running off, you know, by themselves away from mom and dad, she has to come out of that bus and, and come back and, and realize that, you know, there's a there's a, a value and a safety and um you know a love with your parents whereas turning red is like the mom her, her motivation never makes sense she is you know a fundamentalist in the worst way and you know uh, is not there for her daughter and it's ultimately the parents who have to change their standards mo you know way of life to sort of you know fit in with the panda and the turning red thing which you know so the whole metaphor of her turning into a panda is about puberty and there's just a lot of things in that that just are are problematic. Uh, so all I can say is that I, I do think that Pete though, he did, I think Elemental was great. I think that the, the gentleman who wrote that and did that, which is Peter Sohn, you know, Elemental is, it's, he wanted to tell an immigrant story, a love story about two different people. It was really well done. Um, and it, it, it really accomplished what it was trying to do. I think some of these ones on the on the horizon for them could be pretty good. You know, Inside Out 2 is coming this summer. Elio is coming next year, it looks like, is their plan for that. And that looks like a really fun adventure. If you've seen the trailer for that, it's it looks like a really interesting sort of kid encounters this alien civilization. And uh, it's almost feels like kind of Lilo and Stitch a little bit. And but very looks very classic Pixar uh, from what I can see of Elio. So I have some faith and confidence in Pete. I think if if his director has the right idea then he's going to try to push that in the right way. He's also said um, in some interviews like, hey, I think we've, we probably make sure that, that this follows the Pixar model in a little stronger way. So I have some faith in Pete. Another person, I, I know that we're, we're uh, you know, rolling to the end here, but you mentioned about Treasured Planet and the themes of sort of brotherhood and heroism in that. I would also resonate with, um, with the Star Wars franchise aspects of it where they are carrying that through, which is particularly Star Wars The Bad Batch the animated show. Um, it's coming up on its third season here. They're going to kind of end it, wrap up that story. But it is a, that is a very a strong, you know, uh, group of characters, basically kind of an A-team in space kind of a story where they're, they're on these rescue missions. And, you know, uh, you get into the issues of bioethics with the clones and, and you know, they are, are, there are some really deep themes in that about even the, the cost of war 
and what that does to the people who've, who've you know, with, with soldiers who've been in that for so long and how that scars your soul in a, in a big way. And so they're, they're not, they don't shy away from those themes. And, you know, I think if you're looking at what they did in even season two, it was, some of it was really strong storytelling. And uh, that's a little slice of most people don't even realize that's, that's, you know, that in a sense, the Clone Wars uh, journey that's been going on for like 15 years is still kind of wrapping up with that series. But I think uh, Star Wars, the Bad Batch, that is a, that's a, it's a really strong uh, entry in Disney's, you know, animated, uh, you know, TV canon, at least. And they, they, people don't realize there's like, you know, basically six different animation teams within Disney, you know, that are, that are doing different things. So it's like, they kind of have a lock on, on animation in other ways. Of course, the other thing would be, and or season two is going to be coming. That'll wrap up that story. You know, again, you should, Stephen, you know, get a secret, uh, you know, trial to Disney Plus just so you can watch Andor. <laughs> Perhaps I'll go staggering off of a dock and then say uh, engage in some commandeering. Uh, no, I don't actually condone piracy now, but uh, I can't be a pirate anyway <laughs> because I'm a white man. And uh, the next pirate's got to be uh, a, 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 a woman of color now, according to some of the casting rumors I've seen. Hey, somehow we got through this whole discussion without even talking about the Snow White remake, uh, which has like bombed before <laughs> it was even best. assembled. Yeah. And I, that's kind of a make or break moment because, you know, they scrambled, you know, that photo got out of uh, the, uh, you know, the, the colorfully attired, uh, diverse uh, humans, not dwarves. And whether or not that was a final version, like they really quickly put out a, a version of Rachel Zegler's Snow White uh, surrounded by uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> these seven little persons from a ps3 cutscene, uh and that was kind of funny the speed with which they put that together and i thought you know, not dwar dwarves are not final appearance um i i don't know how that's going to work uh if they put it i think either way if they put out anything like the original version it's going to fail but they put out just a, a kind of a, a pandering uh, remake as well then everybody might go see it it might earn a billion dollars but everybody's going to kind of laugh at the same time as for me and my house like we just don't I hate to say this. We just don't see a lot of movies now. I haven't seen any superhero movies in theaters in a very long time. Last one was Spider-Man uh, far. No, no way home, uh, but that's a Sony movie. It is. It's not even uh, underneath the Disney umbrella proper. They just do some profit sharing and such, but animated movies, no interest. Don't subscribe to Disney plus. And yet I still want them to win. All right. You know, I want, I want Pixar to get its groove back. Uh, I think that the lockdowns and the, and this pro streaming monopoly they were trying to do uh, ended up uh, really costing Pixar a lot of brand equity. Uh, if a Pixar movie debuts on TV, how is that different from just a made from for TV movie? How is that different from a, a sequel made with the cheaper animators? Like, no, you don't do that. Pixar needs to go first to theaters. And, and that needs to be the way it is. And I want to see theaters and the theatrical release respected. I don't want to get on my Christopher Nolan soapbox here, but I kind of resonate with that. Zach, any other optimism for Disney slash Star Wars slash Marvel uh, in the future as we draw to a close? Well, I've heard nothing but good things from several of my gamer friends about some of the Star Wars video games. And there was just some news that they're partnering with Fortnite to create some other big video game universe, not just for Star Wars, but for all of Disney. Oh, yeah. Fortniteify all the things. Yeah. yeah. And that's not working out well for that Suicide Squad game. People seem, at least pro gamers, seem not to like that stuff. Yeah, and, but that's like a whole different genre of, of Suicide Squad. Right. But Fortnite is... I, I had a phase where I, I really liked Fortnite. I mostly like just watching other people play Fortnite because it's a really, it's a fun game. It's a uh, obviously hyper violent game, 
but it's also meant to be pretty goofy. And I, I think that fits well with a lot of the Disney IP. Uh, but you know, we'll see. I, I, I would love Disney, you know, Disney could go a long way to winning back my loyalty by making a new version of dark forces, like the 1995 or whatever, uh, PC first shooter game, uh, you know, or, or bringing back just great stories like emperor's new groove. That was this, uh, you know, kind of a sleeper hit. Now I know they, they made like Kronk's new groove and as some TV show, whatever my kids have watched that. But again, it's like, you know, go back to the things you did before. <laughs> like, remember your first love Disney. Like you had some really good stories in, in their recent past, like in my lifetime. So we'll, we'll see if they, they do that. I don't know. So Zach, I don't know if you're aware that Garfield, the movie that's coming out, you know, with Chris Pratt in the role of Garfield, that is like a reunion of the Emperor's New Groove team. They've oh they've, wow! It's like the director, the screenwriter, two of the producers. They're all back on that film. So I have no idea if it's going to be any good, but I am intrigued by the fact that it's like a reunion of yeah. the, of the talent behind Emperor's New Groove. But I, I do have to ask, Stephen, did you you said you don't watch much animation, or did you watch Spider Verse Two? I hope. No, um, I did watch Spider Verse Two. I'm just saying I haven't seen a whole lot of those in theaters. I, I've not seen a superhero movie in theaters, animated or live action, since uh, Spider Man No Way Home. Um, you should have watched Spider Verse in theaters, man. That was uh, that's, that's what a, everyone that said. I and think I, I was see... a little busy, but yeah, it's also I I don't know if I'm just getting old or what, but uh, the animation style, especially during the action scenes, like I kind of need that on a smaller screen. Uh, it's it just it moves a little too fast for me. Maybe it's meant to just age better on the second or third rewatch, but I did really enjoy it once we finally saw it at home. That's a, that's a groundbreaking movie for sure. The chicken run sequel as well, in terms of animation was very good. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Dawn of the nugget worth, uh, worth finding some, some good laughs in that. Okay. I was an original chicken run fan, but not, none of those are Disney though. Like yeah, don't just Disney's not the only one doing animated uh, action comedies. Now there's lots of other great folks. It's really true. And by the way, uh, another Disney project that's just out on the horizon, not going to be immediate, probably 25, 26, would be they're working on a they work with Ron Howard to do a, a Jim Henson feature length documentary and then oh. there's also a Jim Henson biopic that's in the works which will be interesting if they can find anybody who can perform the Muppets as well as Jim did and uh, and actually try to you know have a, a dramatic picture about his incredible you know journey because he he's just such a fascinating figure obviously they own the Muppets now um, and they're working with the Jim Henson company and Lisa Henson. Uh, Jim's daughter uh, to to kind of bring that together. So we'll you know we'll see if that comes together and and uh, what kind of budget it gets and that sort of thing. But there are some intriguing projects like that that I I feel like uh, might uh, almost take us back to an era when Disney was doing more real life mid budget kind of you know dramas. Yeah, I think I just heard you say there was going to be a Jim Henson documentary featuring an all Muppet cast. I'm almost sure that that's what you said, uh, as well as you saying there would be a Princess Bride remake uh, featuring the Muppets as everybody, but featuring Carrie Elwes as the uh, kindly grandfather. I'm sure that's what you said. And and along with that, our dream projects, yeah, Disney can do a sequel to Treasure Planet. I want to know how Jim Hawkins is doing uh, out there uh, joining the uh, the Space Force or whatever it is. Uh, but uh, it's never going to be perfect, right? We're not going to get uh, perfect stories from Disney or any other corporation, no matter how traditional or woke or Christian or otherwise. Um, let us not look to stories for what only our Lord can provide. But Josh can provide some links on the way out uh, before you run back out in the street with your chimney sweep. Uh, where can we find your best work, Josh? You know, I'll, it'll be in the show notes. There's an authory page where I put all my stuff. I write a lot for a number of outlets. Family Theater Productions is a, is a company out of California that's asked me to write a few times a month on family entertainment stuff. So I, I do work for them. But then a lot of religion reporting that I do for the Royce Report as well. So 
you can definitely find my work out there in the show notes and have enjoyed this and definitely would encourage folks to to pick up your your book and everything. It's it is it is a great read and, and a helpful resource. Oh, pop culture parent. Yeah. Well, thanks for the free plug there. I'd, I'd, uh, Josh reminded me coming in the studio that, uh, yeah, he actually interviewed me back in the day about that one. So really appreciate that help there. And uh, in return, yeah, Josh, we celebrate diversity and inclusion. So we're grateful to have a genuine Disney American uh, in the studio, even <laughs> if you married into that family. So we just celebrate uh, all ethnicities here. So thanks for coming in and we'll look forward to having you back to talk about Disney or anything else. Thank you guys both. Steve and Zach enjoyed it. It's great. Thanks for joining me. Well, our thanks to Josh for joining us for this discussion about Disney and to you, our listener, we want to know, do you still love Disney or do you find yourself fighting to love Disney? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or you can tag us in a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We got a note here from Adam David Collings who emailed us after episode 198 about sports fans. And he said this, quote, there is some good convicting truth in this. Here in Australia, sport is almost a religion. It's generally accepted that everyone is into it. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. And you're even an Australian. I think this has led nerds like me to proudly proclaim our indifference to sports ball and even take pride in our often inflated ignorance of sports. But this is not a loving response. I can't control how others respond to my fandom, but I can control how I respond to theirs. End quote. Adam, that is a brilliant response. Very well put. And yes, I, I think that's how we ultimately, you know, win friends and influence people and all that is that we kind of build those bridges and, and maybe that'll make people more interested in the books that we're reading and we can turn them into fellow fantasy nerd fans. Emmy Duffield on Instagram also remarked about episode 198. I may or may not have read Lord of the Rings during the big game last year. <laughs> it must have been, as I said in a response, it must have been a very long game with a lot of overtimes. If you read all of Lord of the Rings, whereupon she clarified, yeah, I meant that I read part of it. So like, yeah, that's one way to do it. But then, yeah, I think about people looking over there like, wow, this person doesn't really watch the game. Uh, this person just showed up and wants to do their own thing. And I'd be with her. I'd be like, yeah, I I would much prefer going to Middle Earth uh, than whatever giant stadium, uh, certainly during the halftime show, which is uh, probably uh, perverse and disoriented anyway. I kind of want to go into my cozy hobbit hole now. And it makes sense. And uh, maybe then uh, give some people who are sports fans a chance to ask, hey, what are you reading? Uh, and then you can realize that hey, maybe there's some uh, similar reasons why we like fantastical tales like The Lord of the Rings as well as games, uh, even uh, professional football. Uh, by the way, time will tell whether or not, uh, Zach, I went to my church's inevitable Super Bowl party. I'm thinking about it as we record. Uh, ask me next week. Hold me accountable. Uh, we'll, we'll see if I was a good neighbor uh, to the members of my other fandom uh, at my church. Yeah, I'm going to a party that uh, just some friends of mine are hosting. You can do it for me. I will borrow the righteousness from your account. <laughs> well, it's just going to be our two families, I think. And, and you know, because we got little kids who got to get up in the morning, we're going to cut it off at halftime. And, you know, I, I guess we'll miss Taylor Swift making that uh, 
surprise performance that I'm predicting and or coming in at the end to get proposed to. I, oh, I, I think, think she's going to do the proposing. I'm yeah. almost certain that that's <laughs> well, going to that, be. And, and then that she could will be the say, other way. Yeah. And they will, she, she will say no to herself and write a song about it. And you know, and all, <laughs> all the, all the, all the tropes recur. And I almost get tired of the tropes as much as I get tired of uh, overexposure or a particular yeah. celebrity. You think maybe she's a little tired of her own exposure too. I mean, she's a human being, you guys. She knows it's a giant uh, corporate machine as much as anything. So there's a lot of the similar principles about Disney that you could also apply uh, to any other fandom, including uh, the Swifties. Yeah, I, I do like this idea from our listener about taking a Lord of the Rings book or just any other book wherever you go. And that way you've always got a book in case something boring is happening where you are. Uh, my middle daughter does this. She takes her fantasy books to school and reads them during quiet moments in class when they're allowed to. Uh, and I actually just recently found out that whenever she's watching, and she told me I could share this, whenever she's watching a show on, you know, a streaming service or whatever, she hits the skip 10 seconds button whenever it's like a boring part of the show. And sometimes she'll skip like entire minutes or half of a show when it's just boring dialogue or something like that. Or, you know, and, and not to mention like you know troublesome or graphic content or whatever. And I just thought, why, why don't I do that? Why do I watch all these boring parts or these, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about movies that lecture you. Like, why don't I just skip through all that? Just forget it. Like, I'm not, life's too short for this uh, two-minute lecture. <laughs> you could get a service that automatically censors all that stuff for you, and you could call it <laughs> Mid-Angel. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, next on Fantastical Truth, uh, this week, this podcast releases episode 200. Stay tuned for new surprises that we will reveal from Lorehaven and its staff creators, not just next week, uh, but throughout this year. And next week, we will pause to consider a rather pivotal theme for the Lorehaven project, not just how we can find the best Christian-made fantasy, but why we must explore fantastical stories for God's glory. Well, sometimes that includes Disney movies, sometimes it doesn't, but either way, follow that C.S. Lewis wisdom about not wishing that the enemy was worse than he already is. You want to be on the lookout for better headlines about what the enemy is doing, and if you see those, uh, don't feel disappointed because uh, they aren't as bad as all that. Uh, feel glad that even a rotten corporation uh, with rotten impulses there can do some good things in the past as well as the present maybe even in the future, maybe even for Disney. So let's hope for the best there as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.